Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time we'll be getting back to the historical stuff and, well, military history. A lot of you might have known that the Nazis had a lot of weird vehicles, and specifically tanks, which they used in World War II. Those things are fairly common if you are a military history fan. However, as I did my Swit Tank series, and I did episodes on some truly famous tanks, there were some... Um, obscure things that were either produced as a prototype or just not much is known about them, and they couldn't really tally their own episode. They couldn't carry a whole show on their own, each of them. So I have um, combined three of these devices, and I'll start with the one that we know the most about, in a sort of a special thing about the weirdest Soviet tanks, I suppose, if you can call them that, that really entered and existed at some point in time. Most of them existed for a short bit only, and they're truly weird. There will be pictures added at the easternborder.lv website accompanying this episode, because, well, some of the stuff you just uh, have to see it to truly believe it. We will continue with all historical episodes throughout this month, and of course, the special one about how the Soviet prisons are kind of like World of Warcraft and vice versa. But that's a bit later. Because, well, this is, um, yeah, this is going to be quite something for all of you military history fans out there. So, let's get to it. First off, I'd like to talk to you about the Soviet Union's, late Soviet Union's, self-propelled laser complex. Yes, they had one. Just one. It was a prototype, and, well, out of all the things that we have here, we actually have the most information about this, as this existed from 1919 to 1992. The weird and kind of mysterious 1K17 Zhatia, which means compression in Russia, and also it was known as Stiletto in NATO reporting, was a unique project developed by the Soviets just before the collapse of the USSR in 1981. This laser-armed tank was designed to be a type of anti-missile system. It could also, sort of-ish, disable enemy optoelectronic systems, including imaging equipment like sights and scopes and, and cameras and whatnot. This thing may seem like something out of Star Wars or whatever, but this was a very real project. 
The idea for such a vehicle appeared in the late 1970s, early 1980s, in the form of uh, the SLK 1K11 Stilet. This was a relatively simple vehicle, being little more than an APC with a small laser lamp on its roof. A further development was the Sanguine, based on the ZSU-234 Shilka Spag. Spag stands for, well, self-propelled anti-aircraft gun. With a large single laser emitter mounted in place of the guns. Very few things are known about the trials and successes or failures of these projects, because there is information to suggest that during testing, the Sanguine's laser once knocked out a helicopter's optical system at a range of 6 miles, or 9.65 kilometers, and disabled the aircraft entirely at 8.4 kilometers, or 5 miles. The project would be revisited in the late 80s with a more elaborate design. This self-propelled laser complex was designed by Nikolai Dmitrievich Ustinov. Ustinov was a scientist, radio physicist, and a radio technician, but he specialized in laser technologies. He was even the head of a school dedicated to laser technology. The vehicle itself was constructed at Ultratransmash, the Ural Transport Machine Building Plant, as, you know, most tank factories kind of um, doubled up as tractor factories in Yekaterinburg, under the supervision of head designer Yuri Vasilievich Tomashov. The first prototype of the vehicle was assembled in December 1990. In 1981, 1Q17, as it was then designated, took part in field trials, which lasted until 1992. The trials were considered a success, and the SPLC was approved for construction and service, though Mr. Ustinov, unfortunately, would not live to see it as he passed away in 1992. However, due to various reasons, like economical and otherwise, and, you know, the Soviet Union literally collapsing, it would never see service or full-scale production. The 1K17 was based on the chassis of the 2S19 MSTAS self-propelled Hovitzer. The gun was removed from the 2S19's turret and it was heavily modified. The solid-state laser equipment was introduced into the subsequent void left by the gun. Now, solid-state is a type of laser that uses a solid focusing medium as opposed to the liquid or gas of most common high-power beam emitters. The project soon became an extremely expensive endeavor, as the solid medium of choice for this ultra-powerful laser, well, it was basically 13 lasers in this case, was, um, yeah, artificially grown rubies, each weighing about 30 kilograms. That's a lot. Uh, internet tells me it's 66.1 pounds each. And like I said, there were 13 laser tubes in the emitter, each one filled by a ruby. The ruby crystal was formed in the shape of a cylinder. After it was harvested, the ends were polished and covered with silver, which acted as focusing mirrors. In operation, xenon gas would spiral around the ruby. The luminescent gas was ignited by lamps in the crystal housing, which would, in turn, ignite the laser beam. The proper range of this laser beam is sadly not really known, but it's probably similar to that of the Sanguines, which is 8 to 9.65 kilometers or 5 to 6 miles. It is also estimated that the laser had a pulse mode that was achieved with an aluminum garnet device that had neodymium additives. This gave off large amounts of power in, well, extremely short bursts and would give the laser a pulsing effect. Sort of like a death strobe or something. But, uh, well, you know, death strobes are cool and all, but could this really work? See, as a defensive weapon, the laser was extremely effective in disabling enemy vehicles, weapons, and, well, all the other visual equipment, really. It could also be used as an offensive weapon against biological targets, uh, as military sites tend to point it out, which is, you know, 
all the humans you could get, all the pilots, crew, infantry, whatever. Much of the information available regarding the effect of lasers on humans come from, well, small-scale tests. The, the source for the following information comes from a recording of such tests, and um, this is from John F. Reddy's Effects of High-Power Laser Radiation. Now, as I told you before, the system could disable enemy equipment. The prototype built on the Shilka is recorded as having downed a helicopter during testing. A laser this size and radiation output could easily cause computer systems to shut down. Plastics and thin metals would likely melt or wrap, ruining structural integrity. With regards to biological effects, it's well known that even pocket lasers and small-scale lasers can cause damage to human eye with heavy retinal burns and scarring. This can result in complete blindness. This effect would be amplified due to the size and power of the, this massive 13 laser system powered by mega rubies, possibly resulting in instant blindness. That isn't known to be the case, obviously, because, well, like I said, literally almost no information on this whole machine, but it's quite likely that the entire crew of the vehicle wore eye protection in the form of tinted goggles matched to the frequency of the light emitted. These are used in most cases when handling lasers outside of military use. The crew of any enemy vehicle looking through a telescope or a gun sight would likely be instantly blinded. And this is where we get to the fun part, because obviously, if you know anything about military history, at this point, if it had entered service and would used like this, would completely breach Geneva Convention. <laughs> because obviously the Soviets would use something that breached Geneva Convention. Because um, there's some articles there from the Convention's Blinding Laser Weaponry Protocol, which was put forward by the United Nations in October 13, 1995. It came into force July 30th, 1998. Well, maybe it's good that they didn't build it. <clears throat> Quote, Article 1. It is prohibited to employ laser weapons specifically designed as their sole combat function or as one of their combat functions to cause permanent blindness to unenhanced vision, that is, to the naked eye or to the eye with corrective eyesight devices. The high contracting parties shall not transfer such weapons to any state or non-state entity. Article number two. In the employment of laser systems, the high contracting parties shall take all feasible precautions to avoid the incidence of permanent blindness on enhanced vision. Such precautions shall include training of their armed forces and other practical measures. And Article 3. Blinding is an incidental or collateral effect of the legitimate military employment of laser systems, including laser systems used against optical equipment, is not covered by the prohibition of this protocol. So, yeah, this is um, an interesting thing. Reactions of the skin and other tissues is a different matter. The effect of laser radiation varies before between the skin tones and keratin levels, but overall results are similar. With a high-powered laser emitting at lower levels, lesions and dead skin begin to appear. With increased power, the damage gets worse. Severe burns can occur with damage to blood vessels, leading to heavy charring and necrosis. Internal organs can also be badly damaged, especially the brain if the head is fully exposed. Death can occur with exposure to the brain by causing deep lesions and extreme hemorrhaging. And, uh, well, obviously this is medical effects, but one should always remember that these effects would be amplified greatly due to the size and power of the 1K-17's emitter. It may not have been designed to be offensive, but it could certainly be a dangerous weapon if deployed in such a manner. But now we get to the fun part. The turret of the 1K-17 was extremely large, being almost as long as the hull, housed the huge laser emitter. There were 13 lenses in the emitter, these were mounted in two rows of six, with one lens in the center. When not in use, the lenses were covered by armored panels. It is unknown to what degree, if truly any, the emitter can elevate or depress, though there is what appears to be a pivot points in either side of the emitter housing. 
Also, given that one of the laser's intentions was to disable incoming missiles, it is quite likely that it could elevate to aim at airborne targets. The rear of the turret was taken up by a large autonomous auxiliary generator unit that would provide power to the emitter. Towards the rear of the turret, on the right was a cupola for the commander. Mounted on here was a 12.17mm NSVT heavy machine gun for self-defense. Aside from this, the tank had no other regular, that is, well, ballistic weaponry to fall back on in a defensive situation, apart from any personal weapons the crew might carry, and they probably did. Oh, it also had six smoke dischargers there. These were mounted in two banks of three on either side of the emitter on the turret cheeks. And previously, as mentioned, this vehicle was based on the design of the 2S19 SPG, which in turn was based on the whole of the T-80 main battle tank, which I think we've covered before. The chassis of which was mostly unaltered, apart from being lengthened slightly for improved stability. It was powered by the T-72's V84A diesel engine, rated at 840 horsepower. This gave the SPG a speed of 60 km per hour, or 37 miles per hour. The driver's position was in the center, at the front of the vehicle. Now, obviously, only a prototype was built, and totally this thing weighed 41 tons on that already, and it was 6.03 times 3.56 times 3.3 meters in dimensions, which is 19.8 times 11.7 times 11 feet. And we don't know even if it had any other crew besides the commander and driver, or what else it could do. And in total, just one was made, but like I said, it was deemed a success. However, while extremely expensive, and I highly doubt that Russian Federation in the early 90s could afford anything like this. The weird collapse of the USSR, the disintegration starting from 1989 with revisions to the state's financing of defense programs, yeah, it really signed the death warrant for the 1K17 project. Only one vehicle was built, and its existence was only recently revealed and the exact properties of the laser system still remain classified to this day, with literally no open source of data. The number of crew that operated the vehicle is, again, also unknown, but we just know that there would probably be at least two guys. The 1K17 itself, however, does even survive. It is now preserved and displayed at the Military Technical Museum at Ivanovskaya, which is outskirts of Moscow. It's unclear what happened to the previous models, Stilet and Sanguine, and again, only thing I have are vague accounts of this. The Stilet was photographed in 2004 at a military scrapyard near St. Petersburg, and it has not been seen since. And again, at this time, the status of Russian laser's weapon development isn't really known, they like rockets more, but I wouldn't know any information to suggest that the such weapons would be in development, because Putin has shown us all sorts of missiles and crazy stuff, but in none of these presentations that we've seen, there has been anything about new laser tanks. Although, we know that the Zhezhatye was not the last laser tank, but it was also sort of supporting one, because there was other thing called KDHR1HDAL, meaning distance, which was basically a chemical detection and monitoring vehicle, and it had a laser radar that could scan a bunch of territory in a minute or something, and that one is in service. But it is in no means a military thing, and it's basically a portable scanning unit, so doesn't really qualify as something ultra strange. Which is kind of weird, but again, remember, this laser tank thing? Yeah, this is the stuff that I had the most information about. Other things get a bit stranger, even. And next we turn to a tank with an interesting name of Objekt 279, or Object 279. 
This thing was a Soviet ultra-heavy tank, then it was kind of downgraded, and uh, only the downgraded version was built. So, again, only one of them was built, and we'll be talking about that, because we at least have something on this thing. It was developed in 1957 at the Kirov plant in Leningrad by Troyanov, an engineer in charge of prototype tank design. The heavy tank's design purpose was to wage war on the European countryside battlefield in the impending World War III scenario. Basically, romp over West Germany and advance forwards. The new tank design needed to manure over rough open ground that was inaccessible to conventional light or medium tanks that, well, Soviets employed at the time. This was accomplished by a track chain that ran along both sides of her entire track area. Most tanks used two tracks, set one on each hull side, while Objekt 279 was equipped with a four-track running gear mounted on two rectangular hollow beams that also were used as fuel tanks. The track adjuster itself was a warm type one. The 279 model was noted for its highly unusual, yet functional, second pair of T95 caterpillars. The weight per square foot of this heavy vehicle was equally spread out across the four track systems. In this arrangement, the 279's operating weight did not exceed the maximum pounds per square foot that would have reduced the ability to carry out the missions on any type of the ground. However, it looked extremely weird. This design approach, of course, increased cross-country performance, while also kind of allowed it to move over soft ground, swampy fields, even like snow and fields with cut trees. The 279 could also cut across Czech-style hedgehogs, kind of a, a meter-high man-made tank obstacles in an L or an H shape that were also popularized as beach obstacles by many nations at the time. The thickness of the glassy plate armor, which is kind of the slope frontmost section of the hull of the 279, was 269 millimeters, or 10.591 inches, and the thickest spot on the turret measured at 305 millimeters, which is 12 inches. The tank was covered by a thin elliptical shield, giving it an appearance more kind of like to a submarine, again, there will be pictures, than any previous tank design. The excessively shaped hull gave the 279 an inherent protection against high-explosive anti-tank shaped charge projectiles from enemy tanks. The shape was also designed to prevent the tank system from flipping over in the event of a shockwave from a nuclear explosion. Because, yes, as one of my early episodes, I, I spoke about how Zhukov tested nukes on his own soldiers, basically, and how the Soviets really experimented with nuclear artillery and... Uh, Hey, what it would be like to if we nuke stuff first and just drive into it? Well, this Object 279 was designed to basically withstand nuclear blasts. Because, well, nothing is too crazy for Cold War, really. To help deflect the wave, this tank was built using uneven shapes of variable thickness and slope. The all-cast front portion of the hull was rounded in shape with thin armor panels for effective use against heat projectiles, which sharply run around the edges of the front and sides of the hull. The sides of the hull, however, were cast with, like, armor panels or something. The cast turret had a front armor consisting of round projective panels mounted to 70-degree angles with a protected turret ring. Now, the crew consisted of a conventional arrangement of four men. The tank commander, gunner, loader, and driver. The tank's main gun was 130mm M65 gun firing armor-piercing discarding sabot rounds with a muzzle velocity of a kilometer per second. That's a thousand meters of you guys who might not know this. The gun was provided with a semi-automatic reloading system and a fire control system that used an optical and radar rangefinder with an auto-guidance unit. 
For night or low-level actions, an L2 night sight with an infrared searchlight was provided. For anti-infantry protection, a coaxial 14.5mm KVPT heavy machine gun was mounted in the turret-facing front. This whole monstrosity ran on a 16-cylinder diesel DJ-1950 horsepowers or a 2DG-8M 1000 horsepowers engines. The tank's suspension was hydropneumatic with a 3-speed planetary gearbox. The tank provided the crew with an NBC protection and an auto-fire firing system. For additional protection, smoke-laying equipment was stowed on board and the combat compartment came complete with a heating and cooling system. The latter being standard in today's tanks, but quite unique to tank crews in 1957. Now, the tank actually did pass all the trials when traversing wet and soft terrain. However, in 1959, our good old buddy Nikita Khrushchev decided that a class of heavy tanks, all the tanks whose origins were existed in the war years of World War II, were basically obsolete. As with um, most military planners of the world, including United States and Britain, he sort of thought that guided missile technology and tanks who could fire such, such as the IT-1, was the way of the future. And as such, the 279 program was halted in 1959. However, the prototype of this single vehicle was saved and preserved and again later exhibited at the Kubinka Armor Museum, again on the outskirts of Moscow. And the whole size of the tank, it was 10.6 meters long, that is 33 feet. It was about 3.66 meters wide, that's 12 feet. And it was 2.22 meters high, 7.3 feet. At the end, its tonnage was 60 tons and it was deemed a heavy tank. But again, the previous prototype, yeah, that was even larger. This thing was supposed to carry 24 projectiles for its main cannon and, well, 300 rounds for its machine guns. However, again, we're deep into prototype territory. Even weirder stuff coming soon, because we have anti-nuke tanks, we have laser tanks. How about um, glider tanks next? Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, here I have to say that in this flying tank, gliding tank project, the Soviets actually kind of, again, used their best buddy, J. Walter Christie, which they had used previously on his fast tanks. But, you know, as it all worked for them so well with the BT-2s, they started looking into uh, Christie's um, weirder projects as well. Namely, Soviets decided to copy, sort of-ish, and maybe improve upon the M-1932 Christie flying tank, which is a United States prototype. Um, but, well, Soviets approached this whole methodology with a um, bit of a different experience and different necessities on the battlefield. However, just like the United States Army, at the end, um, spoiler alert, it proved um, equally useless on the battlefield and was utterly unsuccessful. Again, only one prototype really was built. You see, in 1942, after the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, no concept was insane enough and was off the table for, for the Soviets, really. Taking the fight to the enemy became the battle cry of 1942 and 1943, and one of the more unorthodox plans intended for Red Army was copying this Christie tank and create their own glider tank, which was capable of being airdropped directly into battle from a passing mothership. This became the short-lived Antonov A-40, which eventually, again, proved itself a completely lost cause and utterly useless. Oleg Antonov designed the concept in which biplane wings, tail blooms, and tail surfaces were affixed to a lightweight tracked combat tank. The Soviets experimented with several of these airborne ideas in the 1930s and early 1940s, including more conventional glider drops and parachute drop tanks and tankettes. And these examples would be carried aloft by Soviet bombers modified as mothership platforms. The glider tank was devised as a solution in which the tank could be brought onto or very near the battlefront with the crew already inside the vehicle and ready to fight. Yeah, you mean you have to sit in a huge metal box and then the metal box gets dropped and this is not Warhammer 40k, this is real life Soviet World War II plans. Again, note, United States had similar ideas. You should read on the M1932 Christie, but this is not a United States military podcast after all. The thinking here for the Soviets was that numbers of these attackers could help to overwhelm unsuspecting enemy positions, giving the Soviet Union the advantage on their way to glorious victory. The vehicle of choice became, well, quite famous, T-60 light tank. This track and wheel combat system had been around since 1941 and was available in relatively good numbers. Total production eventually reached nearly 6,300 units before the war's end. Its compact dimensions, 4 meters by 2.3 meters by 1.75 meters, and manageable weight of 5.8 tons made it an ideal candidate for the desperate Soviet army. Additionally, the crew commitment for the small vehicle was just two people, really. Armament, however, was modest, with just a 20mm gun serving as main armament, while a 7.62mm coaxial machine gun, well, supplied some anti-infantry protection. Around this starting point was developed an over-under biplane wing configuration, utilizing N-type struts and applicable support cabling. A cradle allowed the T-60 tank to be nested inside the framework. 
From the trailing edges of the lower wing element emerged twin tail blooms, and each of these held a single vertical fin for the needed stability controlling it in the air. Like I said, very similar to the Christie project and kind of stolen, but it had issues again. A common horizontal tailplane joined the two tail sections together. Since the tank served as the fuselage of the aircraft, no true undercarriage was to be fitted. Instead, the running gear of the tank served as the ground contact for the system. So, you know, it glides down and just plops on running. The vehicle itself, well, was kind of interesting. Because, again, it was quite heavy and everything. But most, if not all, of the work on this T-60 glider tank was done in 1942. By which point the system was designated as the Antonov A-40, but also eventually recognized as the A-40T, and the KT in various sources. If something is 40T, then it's at least, you know, not 40K again. This makes me want to do Warhammer jokes, honestly. Tupolev, TB-3 four-engine heavy bomber, was to serve the project during its active testing phase. However, during the maiden flight held on September the 2nd, 1942, the mothership was forced to drop its tank payload due to its sheer weight and generated drag. This despite the tank lacking some of the necessary combat components, such as its ammunition and fuel. The tank was glided to the surface under control by its driver and managed to survive the weird fall. However, this ended the on 40 venture as a more conventional weapon systems were relied on instead of going forward. And, you know, the conventional, ah, cheap, but will do, but produce it in mass, instead of relying on some Wunderwaffe, some miracle weapons, tja, that was, the, that was the Soviet way. Because, well, turns out dropping super heavy things from planes which aren't really designed to carry such things isn't the best option. The An-40 was therefore kind of a success and a failure for its extremely tiny time aloft. And again, only one was built. The Soviet Air Force lacked a more powerful heavy bomber component to help see the program through, and the glider tank concept appeared more and more novel with each passing month of the war. Despite this failed initiative, the Red Army continued work in the field during the post-World War II period, and ended up generating a family of successful, lightweight, air-droppable tanks, complete with amphibious capability to boot. These systems have developments such as the An-40 to thank for existence in the Soviet and Russian tanks. But we'll get to those actually decent, well, sort of-ish decent tanks on another episode. But yeah, World War II, tank-dropping technology, well, what's really not to love? And I want to end this weird tank episode with the thing that I truly do not even have a lot of information about, but it's something weird. Trust me, you will want to go to the Eastern Border LV and check out the picture of this thing. We're talking about T-55 Progviev T. The thing is, it apparently even served in Afghanistan as a prototype, but the thing looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. Because, technically, imagine this. You, you could hit enemy from a tank in a ton of different ways. This, however, is that plus one. See, according to this tank, the enemy can simply blow off forever and ever, and at the same time burn fully at any depth. This thing is a simple-to-imagine complex concept, but it's just insane in what it was done. So, what do you do? You take a T-55 tank, then you take a jet engine, and you slap it on the tank, pointing it forward, and use the heat and blast effect to clear and disable mines. On paved roads, really. 
super simple, right? Then again, also other sources stated it was T-54 tank, some say it was T-55 tank. It was completely insane, however. What we know about the tank is that it weighed 37 tons, and it had a trolling width of 10 to 12 meters. We really don't know much about its speed, just that it was super slow, and it could continuously operate for two and a half hours. And it could do something with two mines up to 20 centimeters from 50 centimeters from everything. But yeah, it's just kind of crazy because it's a tank with a MiG-15 engine on it. This whole thing and the noise generated didn't make it stealthy. It was a super easy target. And it even didn't work when they modified the tank to strap on two MiG-21 engines. This time the idea, by the way, was to use the force of the engine's blast to knock out oil well fires. It was um, marginally more effective than in the mine-clearing role. Now, what sources we do have comes from the newspaper Son of the Fatherland from October 1993. And it states, quote, I can imagine how worried the enemy intelligence was when the unknown technical monster once appeared on the Afghan highways. Monster fire roads dubbed for a formidable appearance. The airfield heat engine became the prototype and likeness of this warming device. Based on the chassis of the T-54 tank, or T-55 tank again on other sources, because this is how nothing we know about this. This tank was just crazy. It's not surprising that the Afghan scouts initially took the giant trawler nozzle into the barrel of a strange cannon and reported in panic about, you know, what's gonna happen. Meanwhile, the driver, Sergeant Kovyazhin, conveniently led this warming whatever heat-up tank along the Ashabad highway, literally revealing mines and trying to do something about this. And it's kind of crazy. Everything about this tank is weird. This tank was experimented upon, it was an easy target, and it looked like a flame tank, except you use fighter jets as your gun. And the thing, however, is... Uh, we have no idea where this thing ended up. It was either lost in the mountains, or maybe it's at the dump of some experimental plot, nobody knows. However, I'm going to look into deeper sources with this, and I'm going to contact some people, because this progrev te, which literally means heating up tea, or just heat tank or something, this thing is so cool that I really need to check it out more. However, this is all I know about it at the moment, and I'm gonna do some careful research, because this last one, yeah, I think it really does deserve an episode on its own. I hope you enjoyed this crazy tank episode about the weird Soviet mechanical engineering products, and uh, we'll be back next week with uh, some more conventional, and again, uh, possibly sad history. I hope you enjoyed this one. I know that some of you like tank episodes, specifically, you know, all you World War II podcasters out there. This might be cool info for you to look into. Anyway, thank you for listening. Check out our webpage again for all the pictures. And do svidanje, tvarishi. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. 
This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.